1: Hoist the main brace. Jolly the Roger. Sound the foghorn. We're off. We're off. Join us on Jules and Jim's Joyride. Here we go.
2: So I'm delighted to welcome to our programme uh, today, a marvellous guest, a person who is a dear friend, a person who is an extraordinary designer of all sorts of stylings of things and quite a remarkable person all round. We welcome Bella Freud to our Yes. <clears throat> so first of all, Bella, I mean it's it's sort of about transport. Do you, do you enjoy travelling, is that a thing you like doing?
3: Well I didn't like travelling I had a slight phobia about it I think because I travelled so much as a child And it was very um, You know on swish It was like in the back of a van and But now I like Cars like the kind of car you've got <laughs> Parked in the Driveway here like what, what, A flashy is beautiful flashy. elegant yeah. yes, car It's a Mercedes SLS
2: not yeah. the mercedes mlk which of course stands for midlife crisis <laughs> uh, but
1: the sls
3: which is super light fast
1: is and it's gullwing doors and yes it's got a, the number plate is fla 5h
3: well it, it is it's flash in all the right ways it's classy flash and i've I got a more broken but down version of that uh, a mercedes-, mercedes sec yeah yes a two-door pale blue and it's like a tank.
2: They are known as the Panzer Mercedes because they got whatever you do to them, they're bulletproof. They just go on forever. Yeah. But that's but you use that as your general car, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, I've got a scooter. It's a crappy old, horrible scooter. It's not classy. It's it's got no looks. Not like a Vespa or something, which I used to drive. Which did you? Yeah, I what, like in that. a
1: modish way.
3: I don't know how I drove it, but it's quite. They they seem to be safer than bicycles or other things. It's like when you're at the lights, there's this sort of... It's like all the insects on a pond. There's all the small stuff and including, like, different types of motorbikes and bicycles. And it always reminded me of the edge of a pond and then we'd shoot off and then the cars would follow, but...
2: And the cars are like the big fish. The
3: yeah, thing. they were like the sort of carp. Uh, so the scooter I mean, is-, is
1: like a gnat.
3: Exactly, or a water boatman. Yeah. I like those things. Yeah, and
2: I suppose then the the sort of bigger motorbikes, the motorbike couriers perhaps delivering their delivery, might be frogs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um,
1: enjoying this analogy.
2: And you say you used to have a, a Vespa, like Lamboretta-style one. Mm. I mean, were you inspired by seeing La Dolce Vita or by seeing sort of a film with
1: mods and rockers? Quadrophenia.
3: No, I wasn't inspired by any of those, but... I was inspired by a great friend of mine, Christian Louboutin, who's an incredibly successful shoe designer. And he went around Paris on a Vespa. And, you know, we'd go to clubs and stuff and just get on the back of that. And he had a huge box on the back. So we'd get all our stuff in there. And whoever was with him would just go on the back of his scooter. And I thought, this is really Practical but
2: there weren't there problems where he's saying, "Well, oh, this is really great here, but i 'm going to go to another club now, and then like four people come out, but only one person can get on the back of the scooter
3: Well, once we went to somewhere like the Bandouche, and I think I must have met him there he didn 't have a spare helmet, and so we sort of pretended I had one on, even though obviously I didn't, <laughs> and got stopped by the police at two in the morning after about one minute um But every other journey has been successful. Do you enjoy travelling generally? Well, I do now because it's obviously against the law. So, you know, the restricted freedom of movement. And I suddenly realised how wonderful it is to be able to travel. But I've always enjoyed the journey home best. I always get homesick the minute I arrive anywhere and I have this terrible pang of... Even for the weekend, you know, I just think, oh, I'm dying to go home. But it's just like a, a magnet in my stomach that mm. makes me want to go home. But I but, quite agree. I have the same thing. Yeah. It, it's, but now I, I'm more interested in, in the idea of traveling anyway. Mm. It, yeah, she t- trails off. <laughs>
2: no, I like that. I mean, I'm the same. I, I think mm. when you arrive somewhere, there's nothing sort of, it's quite, you immediately feel anxious. Mm. How do I get back from yeah. here? And this yeah. is yeah. And I, if I was at home, I could be doing this instead of being stuck here with. Well, me. it's
1: the old thing about the best part of the party is getting ready to go out to it before. Because I always get you know have a drink, you know, and then I'm quite happy to just stay at home and not bother going to the party. <laughs> and it's the same with holidays, really. Your early travel memories
2: were also sort of makeshifts and and make do an, and mend in the back of a van. What sort of what sort of travelling in the back of a van? was that then?
3: It was um, I. I think it was like a camper van. I was six, and my sister wrote this book about our childhood called Hideous Kinky. And then they even made a film about it with Kate Winslet. I mean, I think this was in the 90s they made it.
1: So that film's about you? Yeah,
3: yeah. Is it? Yeah. Because
1: I've seen it. Oh, I'm, really? It's yeah. quite good.
3: It's, I really like the film. I, well,
1: I'll have to watch it again with a new light. Yeah. A new was, angle on it.
3: It was, it was a good film, um, but in... Reality, We were in the back of a van and drove to Morocco from Tunbridge Wells and it was, you know, very... Um, That's an incredible yeah. thing to
2: do, isn't it, really? Yeah. And I can't imagine anybody in Morocco deciding that they were going to drive to Tunbridge Wells.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah, it's... Uh, so we, we travelled a lot, but it was very unknown, really, where we were going, and how who? we would get there. And,
2: and, and so who was in the van with you?
3: So it was me and my sister, Esther... And then um, my mother and a couple, this man, who I, was, I, th- I can't remember what his name was, and his wife, who was kind of having a bit of a nervous breakdown. She didn't speak or eat or... I just remember these gigantic eyes and her... Yeah, she's just... So having a
2: breakdown in the back yeah, of the van on your long journey. How stressful. It,
3: it was quite alarming, really, mm. you know, sort of peculiar and... Um, a lot of the the travel then was, you know, not really knowing where we were going and I don't know how much fun it was, really. I,
2: I mean, I think when you're six, though, it presumably the travelling is much less because you're not aware of all of the various stresses that the adults might be going through. But
3: I mean, things like, you know, the van broke down, we were very <laughs> aware of that kind of... It would break down quite a lot. And uh, so no-one really knew whether it would start again, what would happen, you know. I just remember it was very haphazard and, uh, but then when we got to Morocco, people were very kind and, you know. I remember once we appeared in this village. This was not on the journey and we got to a village and uh, the villagers invited us to, we were all wrapped in carpets in an orchard and we to in carpets
2: in an orchard. Yeah.
3: <laughs> oh. And we, we had, they gave us these eggs, and I remember my mum trying to fry the eggs on the stones and they kept falling into the fire. And
1: So, like a carpet, like a rug?
3: Yeah, like yeah. a really, like a Moroccan a carpet. Yeah, that almost one yeah. like that
1: you could have flown yeah. off in.
3: Yeah. That
2: would be quite nice to have a flying carpet. Oh, wouldn't it? I've
1: yeah. always dreamt of a flying carpet.
2: Where would you travel if you had a flying carpet?
1: <laughs> well, I presume you'd get it from somewhere in Arabia. Yeah. So i probably probably fly back to yeah, around <laughs> my home. my village and yeah. start showing off.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I suppose it's like you'd never think of where you'd go on a flying part. You'd just imagine it would somehow save you, just suspend you above the chaos of the world, and you'd be you'd be safe, and and like your anxiety would stop.
1: Ooh, I, would I just be thought so of showing nice. off, really. I never thought mm. about it that deeply. Mm. Just like doing a loop-the-loop around, you know... But I find
2: If anybody has a bit of anxiety, showing off gets rid of it straight away. Yeah. But as you've got older, you say you've started to enjoy travelling once again.
3: Yeah, I suppose that type of travel made me be attached to very ordinary situations, like just going home or having somewhere to live that's nice. And um, But I do... You know, like, there's places that I loved the idea of going to, like, Jamaica, and I actually went last October. There's certain places I'd love to go to, but because I haven't been there, I'm apprehensive. You know, I think, oh, I can't go. I don't. So you went to Jamaica? But I actually went, you know. Where did you go? I went, I mean, it was pretty cushy. I went to Goldeneye, and it was just oh, really? amazing. What? Yeah, I, I, because I love Jamaican music. You know, I've been... I remember where I was standing when I first heard Bob Marley when I was 12 and just thought, this is it, you know, this... And I saw him playing and all sorts of stuff and I just loved the idea of going and finding and being there.
2: So how was Jamaica when you got there for you?
3: Well, it was, you know, it was just totally wonderful. Um, I mean, admittedly, it was in a very rarefied situation, but it was still very golden light. I mean, you've probably been there, but um no what is it oh it, gold it's um it's chris Blackwell, it's a hotel, but it's like huts and like wooden cabanas and stuff like that but
1: did noel coward live there Yes, yes. so he
3: lived above there yeah. in in this in this house called Firefly, I think That's it was it, called, yeah. and we went up, Chris Blackwell was there when I went, and he took me up there, and we sat on the hill outside the house, which is not occupied where well, he's buried yeah and yeah. had and he bought this like thing with drinks and it was so so great and he was describing how all his involvement in keeping the shoreline unbuilt up and and it was just it was so nice i mean you just go for a swim in the lagoon and another one and go in the sea and you know
2: Rico Rodriguez, the trombone player who was in my orchestra. yeah, who, I love him. who was He's brilliant he came over nineteen sixty one from Jamaica, but as lads uh and they they, uh, he'd learned his music at the Alpha School with the old nuns, which is where a lot of um, Jamaican musicians yeah. learn from, but they of course wanted to get away because they wanted they thought they'd find their fortune either in America or England or somewhere anyway, so Rico, when he was like sort of twelve or fourteen uh at that age, he said, also said when Winston Churchill's yacht was moored off there, they, they swam out and nicked his cigars <laughs> when, when they were lads. But they also said he tried to escape, um, well, not escape, but he wanted to sort of get away from Rika. So no, he, Winston did, no, no, no <laughs> this is Rico. So he stowed away, went through the docks at night and stowed away by hiding in the lifeboat. Of a like a big uh, like sort of commercial ship that was carrying sort of stones or gravel or whatever it was ballast, and uh, hit it and he heard it started and it went off. And he thought and he had some little bit of food and water and he thought I'll just hide here till we get to where we're going. He said after about three days he ran out of stuff and he's really like kind of what am I going to do? He said and the, the, sh- the cook on the, the ship realized he was there he said and he said felt sorry for me he used to bring me a little bit of food and tell me that i should walk around at night on the deck when there was nobody there anyway so he said so i survived it went on for two weeks but i had to spend a time in this oh thing and then eventually and the chef said right hide now because we're coming back into port okay so he so he hid and i thought at last and he could hear the noise of the docks and the shop, and, and then he heard all the, the guards and the dogs barking and somebody had grasped him up and they took him out and he was back in Jamaica. And all it had done, this ship just had gone, big, <laughs> had gone yeah. round, do, dropping its ballast where it had to go, and then it had come back to Jamaica. Back to where so he got it? On. it, it no. got to, yeah, two weeks of, of pure hell for nothing.
1: Have you ever been a stowaway? No, have you? On the cross channel ferry, yeah.
3: I quite like going far away places for short amount of time. I did go to Australia. For two nights once. That is a long one for two <laughs> nights.
2: That's amazing. Right. So I know. I just,
3: but hang on, how long, do we, for, first of all, what was the purpose of your visit? The purpose was to launch a perfume out there. And um, so it
2: wasn't called jet lag.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I went with a, a colleague and she went on to do to another city. And I had to come back for something else. And I just thought, that sounds great. You know, if I go fast enough, I maybe won't even get jet lag. And I managed to do a lot. I went to the opera. I but all in the yeah two days yeah and I not no no not fall asleep. asleep you and know, how long
2: did it take you to get there? Do you think twenty four hours on a plane? Yeah, I think so. Hours,
3: it? It's a really really long journey. Yeah, um, yeah. So
1: you didn't get a jet a jet lag though, because was no, so short.
3: I didn't. I don't remember. I don't remember that jet lag being so bad not as bad as going to japan oh, the and japan's then to the america worst. that that mm. unbearable oh, i
1: couldn't i couldn't work out because i've been to australia and japan which is yeah. about i mean japan's nearer yeah. slightly but the jet lag in japan is just the worst it's like 2 it, weeks long it does
3: take a long yeah, time to yeah. unscramble yourself from
1: it. There is a way,
2: and I'm not quite sure how it works, of avoiding... If uh, we, we played in Australia and then afterwards we went and played in Argentina and we didn't have jet lag and then we came back to Britain and we didn't have jet lag because each time they're going, whatever it is... On the set, on a time... The, yeah, exactly. I can't... I don't thing. even... I can't... If somebody were half... Sensible here, they'd tell you what I was what I meant. Yeah. But, it, oh, but just trust me, it was all right. <laughs> so you
1: just keep going. You
2: just keep going. Yeah, yeah. do right. so
1: if you go, yeah to avoid jet lag, eat coddled eggs and boiled bacon. Oh, really? Yeah, no, it's just nice, but it's uh, you, th- th- there. yeah. There's the cure.
2: Yeah, thank you. That's a great help. <laughs>
1: that was told told to me by Lord Sodalot
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sodalot When you travel, is there a particular food you like to have, or do you, do you find is it, or is it better not to eat?
3: It's better not to eat. Um, the ideal thing is n- eat as little as possible, and then when you get there, you feel. I don't know. That's my. What method. on a plane? Yeah, I, once you start on a plane, it's hard to stop, and then it it sort of plays. I feel it interferes with your ability to be like lucid when you arrive. I I want to be as kind of uh, clear-headed when I get somewhere. So ideally have like a really good breakfast before you leave, don't eat on the plane. I get a stomachache really easily. So I'm often like just avoiding a stomachache. So if I don't eat, I don't get a stomach. I mean, it sounds a bit grim, but it works way, for yeah, me. Exactly. I, um,
1: I was on a plane once, uh, in fact, I was going to Australia and because I was on it for so long, we stopped, I think at Singapore. And I just put I got a new pair of Converse and I had them on and my feet swelled up so much I couldn't get them off and I hobbled (gasps) to get off at Singapore and I I hobbled through the the, airport
3: is so enormous there as well it it goes on for miles
1: wouldn't actually come off my feet very suspicious I would have thought to the customs people what are you trying to hide? yeah I insist take those shoes I did actually (laughs) get arrested once when I was at Reading Festival in 1976 and the police I presumably looked like a drug dealer so they took me in to the police station and said take your shoes off my boots off which I'd tied into like very firm knots and they'd been there for about three days because I was such a sloven I was sleeping in a tent without taking my boots off and they said no help no scissors nothing you just have to sit there picking away at your shoelaces until they come off and I was in there about seven hours well that's a sentence in itself isn't it <laughs> exactly oh, didn't, didn't find was... anything no apart from some sock horror no. <laughs>
2: I mean, you drive a classic car every day, really, because your Mercedes SEC is a classic car. Are you, are you, do you enjoy driving? Are you a good driver, do you think?
3: Yeah, I am quite a good driver. Um, I can park well, and because I've always driven a big car, I think I feel at home, and my first car was a Ford Granada, which I haven't oh, seen any of those oh, for a long Ford. time. Like in the Sweeney. But anyway, it was what, massive. What black it was just nice. fantastic
1: cool. That's cool. Yeah. black or gold looks good cool. it was, oh, I love a it was a my
3: dad had a re- for I loved it really yeah. yeah it was it was a nice shape you know like mm. it that's elegant a big car,
2: isn't it? but you said you're a good driver i mean your father lucian who was one of the greatest <laughs> painters in the world but i do remember that he was in my memory he was one of the worst drivers in the
1: world.
3: Well, he wasn't exactly a bad driver, he was the most terrifying driver.
1: Didn't he drive he at a... very high speeds? Yeah, the yeah. Sorrow?
3: And he um he told me that he'd had a getaway driver from a gang take his test for him and it was almost like they would imbued in him this style of driving but so he didn't even
2: take his own driving test no Couldn't no I think
3: people didn't no. often in those they yeah. just give someone 20 quid and yeah. I remember driving down Portobello at night with him and he would do something that he said the police did or had someone had taught him which was to sort of have the lights off and then just flash them on so this thing would be zooming down the road at top speed and then the lights would go on and off and whoever well, was, was in the way on Would scatter. It was just. I don't really know why this
2: was such a feature. But I mean, I remember being in a car with him once, and he and he came to parking. And his method seemed to be to just reverse him, crash into the car behind, crash into the car in front, crash into the car behind again until it was all straight. Uh, yeah. I mean, not at high speed, but just gently bash into each car. That was then right. he knew he'd gone far enough and would move back. And
1: flashing the lights at the same time.
2: <laughs> and I didn't think, I didn't, I, I didn't like to say anything because I thought it's a sort of bad manners <laughs> to sort of criticise somebody's driving when you're, you know, you're, it's like that, you know. What, well, did you just nod and smile and go, yeah, yeah no, cool. No, I just ignored the whole thing. So, you know.
3: I know that was the best method I think just ignore because he didn't really appreciate being if you express terror but somebody told me this art dealer told me this story which I almost feel like I've made it up because it seems so far fetched but he definitely told me they were driving up Peel Street you know from Kensington Church Street one of those narrow streets with all those bijou little houses and they drove top speed up this road and there was a sort of you know father taking his prams out of the car and the door was open onto the street it was like a one street car and he just he said they just drove at top speed smashed the car door just drove past the car door open the car door flew off and carried on and he never said a single thing <laughs> and nor did Matthew sort of there was no it wasn't mentioned yeah. but I just can't see how that's no, possible I, I might have to verify but, but he that, told me this that's story a, that's, a, that's exactly
2: how I think and presumably the art dealer sitting next to him like me didn't
3: like to say anything,
1: so yeah. you don't say, or don't you think... So it was all just, all this stuff was done in silence.
3: Yes,
2: exactly. I yeah, would we just imagine it, maybe you know. he'd
3: sort of hooted as he was going at 70 miles yeah. an hour, and the man would have thought, there's no way that's going to happen, and it did happen. Mm. And... Uh,
2: but he didn't teach you how to drive?
3: No, I had a brilliant driving instructor, this woman who taught everyone she taught to drive past first go. And... Uh, so I passed my test first go and it was one of the great moments. I always remember the man saying, well, Miss Frude, you've passed. Um, <laughs> and just Thank you. wanting to fling my arms around him, but I didn't. Yeah, um, no, it, it is actually horrified. thinking about
2: it. That is one of the greatest moments in anybody's life. Mm. You have passed. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact
1: ...from our sponsors. Farts. We've all delivered them from a Cardinal's error, a Parsnip Farmer's Lament or a Raymond Burr to a wet weekend in Whitley Bay or a dynamic duo. But they can lead to embarrassment when, for instance, you're delivering a lecture at the Explorers Club or genuflecting for a knighthood.
2: Fret and fart no more with a refrain at the arse plug that's 100% recycled. Isn't that just a hat peg? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> railways. Where do you stand on railways? Oh the railway? yeah,
3: I love a train journey. I really love that. Have you
2: made any good train journeys?
3: Um. Well, I used to go on those European travel. You know. Oh, Trans Europe Express. Yeah, yeah. I'd go from London to um to Paris and then to Italy. Oh. And- I always wanted to go you know to the end of the line but again because I'm a bit of a wimp about traveling like I wanted to go to Moscow or whatever but I never did um, and uh, I remember going to maybe going to Rome when I was about 19 with this friend Sophie de Stemple and we traveled and we went to Spain and and to Italy and we only had one book, so we ripped it in half, and of course she she had one bit, and then we swapped over. And um, but I suppose like those kind of travels uh, was was so exciting about what you were going to read. Um, and then I, when I was a kid, you know, when we went to Morocco, some of that time we were on a train, and we used to sleep in those um, luggage racks, you know, the ones with the like a hammock. Yes, and so. I always felt quite adept at, you know, I can actually sleep on a stool. I could sleep in anywhere. I can curl up and sleep partly because of that. And, uh, you know, reading a good book and, and what kind of food you'd get from the the person on the-
2: Oh, I love that in the, on the Italian platform. ones or the German ones and all that, yeah. Yeah,
3: like a, if you could get something good and the train wouldn't leave you behind. It was all really nerve wracking, but sometimes it was, you go and have a white tablecloth and a full English breakfast oh, or lovely. Italian. Yeah. It was just amazing.
2: Really great. I think they don't do that any much more on trains. It's not. No. They don't, it's, a, it's a paper tablecloth and a, sort yeah. of a, a, a little paper basket of stuff. But it's that thing horrible, where they used to come yeah. round with a silver tray and the, they've got their botan and unloading things God. from their silver tray onto your plate a bit more of that and, yeah. and they treat you the same as if you have gone to the grandest restaurant in the world and uh, so your usual table sir and yeah. all that and an excellent choice they say when you've chosen to egg <laughs> and bacon or whatever it is you know it's, I, I love yeah. all of that I think you can't, oh, it's can't so, go wrong uh,
3: mad. it feels so grand mm. doesn't it you know like being in the restaurant car in the train yeah. even
1: on the little, those little local I used to love those carriages you get, mm. when you get in you know, the six seat carriages that you get on a local train.
3: I used to have a recurring nightmare set on a train when I was eight that went on for y- ages. And I dreamt that I was in one of those carriages, you know, where you'd pull open the door, like those French doors with glass partitions. And and then I was in one with a giant and in the other carriage there, was it was filled from floor to ceiling with pins, you know, like long pins. And he, the giant said, you have to move all these pins from one carriage to another in three seconds or else. <laughs> and by the time he'd said it, three seconds would oh. pass, and I knew that or else meant I was going to die. Oh! And I just had this dream on and on and well, on. What train, I wonder. I don't know. The train was very vivid. It was, you know, one with a passage, you know, the corridor, yes. and you'd open the doors. And I suppose I'd spent quite a lot of time in there and I always think of you find the perfect train seat as like safety especially if you're going to spend quite a long time like a day or a few days or something so um,
2: have you ever met anybody romantically on a train
3: no but I don't think so she says "Like I can't remember but I remember watching someone meet someone else on a train not that long ago like in the last 10 years a or brief
1: encounter.
3: You could see they were having this enormous attraction. And then when it came into London, this man looked at her with like we can't end here. Oh, oh. And she said, mm, "I'm really sorry." And obviously she was married. Oh, you could oh, you just knew encounter. everything yeah. that was oh. going oh. to happen. Oh. And I saw as it came into the station their heads touched.
1: Oh. So it was a brief encounter.
3: And that was probably the only thing that happened, but clearly this enormous thing had built up between them. I bet he
2: went on that train every day. And after
3: that. Uh, I never forgot it. It oh. was about 15 years ago, but it was so palpable. My parents um, met on a train, actually. Really? This is true. They met on
2: the train from, I think, going from around about London Bridge somewhere. And then without that, without that chance. Wow. encounter of getting into the I wouldn't um, be here now we, I wouldn't be here now you both would but I wouldn't <laughs> oh my
3: god that's amazing yeah so yeah. They, they,
2: those things do happen you see mm. yeah.
3: another good journey actually which just before we end is on a donkey because when I was Ooh. in Morocco I, I um, there were a lot of donkeys there and I I sometimes used to be a shepherd to donkeys when we were in the country and I'd hang around with the local kids looking after donkeys and I had a real attachment to them and you don't obviously go... It's a pretty arduous journey, but if you don't have anything else, a donkey is a means...
2: But if you use a donkey as a means of transport?
3: Yeah, there. How far it's, did you travel on the donkey? Well, I remember going on long, one very long journey for... I don't know, you know how time is so weird when you're a kid, but, you know, going through the night on a donkey and...
1: Through the night?
3: yeah. You know, and that it would have like saddle bags, and I remember at one point me and my sister being in the saddle bags, and going up mountains. And the worst journey was on a camel. That's really, really uncomfortable, um, horrible. So much lurching.
2: Where were you traveling on a camel? I don't
3: know. Somewhere in Morocco. Like I, we, because some of the time we were, we went through the Atlas Mountains, and you know, sometimes we hitchhiked and. Uh, Sometimes we went on.
2: This is after the van had broken down.
3: So the van, van was the journey to Morocco. Yeah. Then, when we got there, we we spent some time just in Mar- Marrakesh. But other times we we travelled around in this, you know, non-luxurious like in style, a, a, which in a, is a, a,
2: in a donkey train. Yeah, not dissimilar to sort of Bilbo Baggins and the wolves <laughs> yeah. as they trundle across through the mountains of Mordor, wherever Probably, they're trundling. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic! You travel in in the saddlebag of a donkey with your sister on the one on the other side. Yeah, yeah,
3: bit of variety. Mm. Yeah. You
2: know. There used to be a donkey man on Blackheath, and I used to travel on the donkeys there. But it was only just up and down outside mm. Greenwich
1: Park. Oh, I remember. Yeah, when was this last week?
2: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's really good, and I get an ice cream. As well. Yeah. <laughs> good boy. <Yeah. laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
1: Well, I think we've completed our um, questionnaire now. So, (laughs) thank you so much, Bella Freud. Thank
3: you for having
2: me. So, there she goes, Bella Freud, uh, uh, both on camels and on donkeys, on trains. Yeah, and
1: in a a Granada. Yeah, can you imagine? Yeah. Oh, how fantastic. Hmm. This podcast was produced and edited by Molly Stewart.
2: Sound engineers were James Stewart and George Latham.